I'm drinking champagne and feeling no pain till early morning. Dining and dancing with every pretty girl I can find. And having a fling with a pretty young thing. Good morning, good morning, good morning, sweet, beautiful Texas and beyond. Cal Snow drinking champagne, kicking things off for us. On the Lone Star Outdoor Show, I'm your host, Cable Smith. So great to be here, talking, hunting, fishing, the great outdoors and all that implies with you fine folks. Uh, Thanks also to our title sponsor, Dallas Safari Club, as well as Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players. They keep us on the air, and we are uh, thankful for that, and I'm thankful Uh, For you guys and gals, because we are in the right place right now. I tell you what, we've got a great show lined up for you today. So, you know what to do by now. Pull up that stool a little closer to the old campfire. Pour yourself another cup of coffee out of that beat-up old Stanley Thermos. Yeah, maybe your grandfather passed it down to you. And it's one of those deals where you never can get that burnt coffee from all those years passed out of there. But you don't want to. It's like a cast iron skillet. It just adds flavor. Uh, anyway, pour yourself another cup because off the top today, a, a very special guest, one who when he speaks, I listen intently and I try to soak up every word that Shane Mahoney says. Uh, he's the founder of Conservation Visions, a longtime hunting outfitter, conservationist, author, and TV show host. Uh, who's man? He's got so many irons in the fire when it comes to conservation and spreading the message that sustainable use hunting is indeed conservation. Uh, and, and so we're going to get into some of those today. But more specifically, we're going to dissect social trends in hunting, and it's going to be a historical look back at mankind that will help explain. Why you and I are the way we are. In other words, what makes us tick? Why do we take to the field in the pursuit of wild game? We don't have to. I mean, we could go to the supermarket. We could go get a hamburger at McDonald's or Whataburger or whatever. Uh, But we choose to do it because we don't know any other way. At least I don't. And, uh, And Shane will be here and he'll explain exactly why that is and also... Where we're at today in this politically and socially charged climate that often portrays hunters in a negative light, how do we portray ourselves in a way that will keep people from thinking that we're these bloodthirsty heathens uh, like the liberal media often tries to portray us as? Uh, So some interesting stuff to get into with Shane. Uh, We'll spend three segments with the guy. And uh, I promise you it will be one of the most interesting listens of 2018. Guarantee it. Uh, Then we'll wrap up today's broadcast by talking trout and redfish with Captain Nick Dykes of uh, Triple D Guide Service down in Galveston Bay. Specifically, we're going to talk wade fishing and oyster reefs. uh, Probably mix in a little topwater action as well. So that's coming at you here at the bottom of the hour. A couple other things to mention Don't forget our uh, January-February photo of the month contest is going on right now. We are offering up a pair of Costa sunglasses as the grand prize. 
All you have to do to enter is use that hashtag LSOS photo contest or post your uh, photo on our Facebook page. If you don't do social media and you are stuck in the dark ages, that's fine. Uh, no problem there. You can, well, you have to have an email at least. You can email it to me at Lone Star Outdoor Show at gmail.com. We'll get you entered. And then our 12 monthly winners from, well, there might only be six because we think we're going to do it bi-monthly now. Uh, but our monthly winners from 2018 will square off at the end of the year for a chance to hunt trophy axis deer or black buck with me down at Coons Canyon Ranch in Rock Springs, Texas. Uh, what else? Let's do let's do a quick giveaway. I've got a scent blaster. Uh, you guys and gals have heard me talking about this unit. If you use any kind of scent in your hunting sets, whether cover scent or what I use the scent blaster for is... Uh, to lure in hogs, deer, predators. I uh, had great success with it. Uh, shot my nine-point in Oklahoma using the scent blaster this season. I mean, he made a beeline right to it. And so if you use scent, then you need to have a scent blaster in your hunting pack. It's a better mousetrap. It gets more scent out, and it gets it out for a longer period of time. Anyway, that being said, you can find them at scentblaster.net, or you can text in Right now, today, be the third person to text in the word Scent Blaster. Yeah, it's one word. Scent Blaster to 214-289-7807. And we'll send you your very own Scent Blaster unit. I think they retail for like $39.99. Uh, also throw in a Lone Star Outdoor Show sticker. So be the third person to text in and you could win. Let's take a break up next. So much to get into with the great Shane Mahoney right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hey y'all, Cable here for 3 Curl Outfitters, and whether you want to bow hunt hogs or get after them with thermal imaging and night vision, under the cover of darkness, 3 Curl has you covered. They've got the latest and greatest thermal imaging and night vision technology. They hunt unlimited, I mean just thousands upon thousands of acres of ag fields, or if you're a bow hunter and you want to sit in a stand and wait for the hog to come to you, uh, they can do that as well. Check it out, 3curl.com to book your next hog hunt. Howdy folks, I'm Lee Hoffbear for Hoffbear's Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas. I hope you're enjoying the Lone Star Outdoor Show. We've been a title sponsor for a number of years now, and we're proud to be a part of it. I'd also like to thank you for making Hoffbear's once again the number one Polaris dealer in Texas. Please keep buying your Polaris products from us. Send us your friends, your neighbors, all your hunting buddies, and I promise we'll keep giving the best deals on a brand new Polaris in all of Texas. Whether you're looking for a Polaris for work or play, whether you need a regular Ranger or maybe a Ranger Crew, an RZR, they've got an all-new Ace that you need to come test drive. We've also got four-wheelers from a youth model all the way up to the all-new Sportsman 1000. For your Polaris headquarters, Hoff Powers Outdoor Superstore in Gulfway, Texas is who you need to see all or get on the web and contact today. You can check us out at hpolaris.com. That's H's in Hoff Power, polaris.com. Or you can come see us at Highway 84 West in Gulfway, Texas. And folks, Hoff Powers has been in Central Texas for over 50 years now, and we couldn't have stuck around this long if we were steering you wrong. I'm Henry Smith, and you're listening to my dad on Lone Star Outdoor Show. I know there's been darkness in your life. I want to help you find the sun. Because I've been there when the sun don't shine. No, you ain't the only one. 
Breaking the Storms, the name of that one there from The Great Divide, bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show, powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith riding shotgun with you today. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, thanks to our presenting sponsors, of course, Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well. Man, we are all set to take a listen to one of one of my favorite conversations I've ever had. Uh, and that's saying a lot in nearly nine years of doing this. But when Shane Mahoney speaks, I stop down and listen. When it comes to conservation and articulating how sustainable use hunting is conservation, a few people, actually I don't think anyone does it better than Shane Mahoney. Uh, we taped this interview at the Dallas Safari Club convention a couple weeks ago. Uh, I just sat there, probably with my mouth open, just in awe of not only the knowledge that this man possesses, but how he so eloquently uh, gets his point across to his audience. Uh, but before we jump into that conversation with Shane, this segment of the show brought to you by Dallas Safari Club, the worldwide leader in big game conservation. I'd like to invite you to get plugged in with this great group of folks who are passionate about hunters' rights, education, and conservation. To do so, check us out at biggame.org. Okay, well, without further ado, here it is, my conversation with renowned author, conservationist, TV show host, and the founder of Conservation Visions, Shane Mahoney. Well, Shane, welcome back to the show, man. Thank you very much. It's great to be here. Appreciate it. Is it is a pleasure. DSC is always one of my favorite weekends of the year. Yeah, well, it's a lot to see, a lot of people to meet. <laughs> yeah, yeah. sometimes I feel like I'm running around like you know, like a chicken with my head cut off, but... Well, everybody feels yeah. that way, oh, so man. you're not alone. And, and <clears throat> one of the things about the shows that I, you know, that people don't realize is you have all these appointments set up, and I'll be damned, every time you try to get to the next one, you run into three people you know who you're not talking to. Very them. true. That's why I just had a phone call <laughs> then. I had to tell people I'd be a bit late for my next one. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> uh, but that's the beauty of it. You see people that maybe you don't see all year, and, yeah. and you want to catch up with them. It's very true, and uh, it also, the, these shows, I think, are a... Are a bit of a, a barometer too, you know, the state of play of things. Uh, you know, how how uh, how many people are here, whether people are buying, you know, all those kinds of things. I mean, sure. they uh, they uh, they are a metric, a measure by which we can get at least some glimpse into the into the hunting and outdoor world. You know. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I think compared to, uh, so I volunteer. I'm on the exhibitor welcome committee. Oh. I walk around uh, in the morning and you know just tell ten or twelve exhibitors in my section we're we're glad that you're here. And uh, if they've made a donation or something, you know, good for you. Yeah. Well, no, it's it's not me. It's this whole event is put on. Yes, by yes, yes, yeah. But but uh, uh, I know. But that I didn't realize that there were people who did that. Thing yeah, here. yeah, yeah. So there's a hundred. There's eighteen hundred and fifty exhibitors. If we all have ten, there's probably a hundred and eighty of us walking around. That's doing amazing. That. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <coughs> oh, but, that's uh, good. But so last year, some of the outfitters that I had in my section were saying, "Ah, oh, it's kind of slow. We're not we're not selling as many hunts as we typically do." Trump gets elected, and you know yeah. now every things in motion and, and yeah. they're doing really well so far at this show so we're happy about that yeah that's that's all good yeah. that's all good um well so my buddy um my buddy and i were talking recently he listened to our last interview he goes god shane is about the most articulate person 
um, that I've ever heard speak on conservation issues. And I said, I know, I'd, I'd like him to read me bedtime stories <laughs> with that voice. And he goes, yeah, bedtime stories about killing stuff. <laughs> so uh, maybe you have a, a career as a, you know, an audio tape just reading hunting stories. Well, maybe so. Maybe people, so. Uh, put, yeah, put yeah. people to sleep with it. I mean, it's soothing. Yeah, maybe um, so. Maybe I should write some hunting stories and narrate them. <laughs> you yeah. should, yeah. Absolutely. <laughs> Like I said, kind of an open slate today. Yeah. Uh, I always come up with an outline, what I want to talk about. I want to know what you want to talk about. Uh, you gave me a couple couple things that maybe are on your heart, and mm-hmm. one of them being uh, social trends in yeah. hunting, yeah. where they're going. Yeah. It's, uh, <clears throat> you know, there's no question that any time that you look at the history of any movement or any activity, um, wherever you draw that line in time, things are somewhat different. In other words, um, social trends are always evolving, and they may be assisted or influenced to some extent by inventions such as newspapers or telephones or televisions or social media or whatever. But the social trends are happening inevitably, uh, even without those kinds of things. People talk, people change attitudes, people have new experiences, they learn new things. And so uh, it is inevitable that the social trends will in part um, bear upon the issue of hunting mm-hmm. and the use of animals in the, in the larger theater, even uh, domestic animals, for example, and animals we have domesticated for food and so on. You know, there are social trends moving in many directions that bear on this. And um, I don't think there is any question that there is a rising uh, empathy for animals generally around the world and a lot of people think this is uh, some people think that's silly some people think it's uh, orchestrated by you know animal rights organizations or very protectionist oriented individuals or organizations but I don't agree with that Mm. Um, I believe the social trends are happening for for reasons and some of those influences may be increasing the trends or exacerbating those trends But I think the reason that we're seeing these trends emerge so strongly everywhere is because um, human beings more and more globally are being separated from the necessity of providing for themselves directly in terms of food. And as a consequence of that, they are being moved further and further and further away from the realities of animal death. Right. And whether that's fish at sea that are harvested, you know, or whether it is an elk that someone pursues, or whether it is, uh, you know, a, a springbok that somebody shoots in South Africa, or whatever, um, they 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 forget that um, these people forget that something dies to provide what they eventually sit down to consume. It's not that they're ignorant. It's not that they are are are, are silly or stupid, as you know some people want to call them. It's just that the reality is that their lives have moved so far away from that that they're desensitized to it. The second reason it's happening, though, and the reason one could ask, well, okay, so why should that in and of itself, that separation from animal death, why should that, uh, you know, lead to an empathy for animals? If they're separated, why, why do they care at all? Maybe they should be totally indifferent, which I think would be a reasonable question from someone in the audience listening to this. Well... I think the answer to this lies in the way human beings have dealt with animals throughout the entirety of our existence. Um, We know that it is possible for the same human being, for a single human being, 
to care deeply for animals and at the same time be a hunter. Absolutely. We, we don't find any problem with that, those of us who hunt. Um, and some of us, of course, feel very strongly both about, say, a dog we might have. Uh, but we can also come, obviously, to love and cherish wild animals. And obviously, many of the wild animals we love and cherish, we don't hunt at all, many right. of them. And uh, of the ones that we do hunt, we only hunt a small fraction. I have a bird feeder in my backyard. It's no, of one course. of my favorite things to do. Is Absolutely. Just, just to look at these little creatures, how fast they are, how yeah. nimble they are, and see them fighting with one another over mm -hmm. the morsels of food. It's, it's, it's wonderful. Uh, and of course, the point is, we always did that. And so when you look at <clears throat> the past history of human beings, we were taught a great many things by the animals around us. And we did not teach them really anything. But they taught us an enormous amount. I mean, they taught us uh, about the seasons uh, and where we could find them. They taught us about where grasses grew and where forage plants were. They taught us about the natural world because we saw them eating things and we tried the things that they ate. We, we learned from them about when they would be most vulnerable. We learned from them when they would breed and when they would, uh, how they escaped predators, what kind of landscapes they used to be, to be safest in, uh, which rivers were the most dangerous to cross, um, which mountains could be climbed. We learned so many specific things from these wild others that we, of course, were fascinated by them and came to admire and respect them. Mm -hmm. um, and we can see this even in, uh, again, even in domesticated animals, horses we may have, or, or, or dogs or, or other animals. They continuously teach us things. So the greatest reflection of that part of us is also demonstrated in the greatest reflection of the other side of us, which was our hunting side. We are an animal, and we existed, as all animals did, essentially the same as they did for 99.9% .9 of our existence. Mm -hmm. uh, we hunted them, they hunted us. We dealt with the weather in the same way they dealt with the weather. We dealt with accidents the same way they did. We saw death, we saw injury. Uh, we were predated upon. We feared big predators. They feared big predators. Some of the big predators didn't fear us at all. We were in that world. And if you go and visit the parietal art, as it's called, the cave art, the famous cave art paintings in Europe, which were painted over a period of about 30,000 years. Mm -hmm. Over a period of 30,000 years, human beings, essentially like us, Cro-Magnon, went into those caves in total darkness, and in some cases climbed down uh, fairly steep walls, crossed in some cases underground streams to eventually find themselves in certain spaces that lent themselves to being places for art in their minds. Mm. They lit their way into those deep, dark, damp expanses with only the light afforded by a small amount of animal fat, maybe in a shell or in a stone, and with a wick that might have been made out of cotton grass, or it may have been made out of uh, lichen or something of this nature. But that was all the light they had to undertake these subterranean journeys. <laughs> and some of those places they painted are a quarter of a mile into the earth. Uh, before they finally decided that this is the place in which I will paint. 
Now, if you look at what they painted, yes, there are some scenes that are clearly about hunting. Mm -hmm. You see an animal that has obviously been wounded. In some cases, you see an animal that has a spear in its body. In some cases, you see you know, blood flowing from its mouth or its nose in its death throes. But the vast, vast majority of the paintings are of animals that are not being hunted. They are, you, you simply see them as herds of longhorn bison or as brown bears or as wolves. Or, and a lot of it is about the animals that they would have hunted themselves, wild horses, reindeer, you know, uh, those kinds of species. And you ask yourself, or I have asked myself when I first went to visit them, now why would human beings travel all that way and then decide when they got to a place where they wanted to release this creativity and create this art, mm -hmm. why would it be animals that they painted? Why didn't they paint something else? There are no landscapes at all. Huh. None. Fascinating. Absolutely none. Huh. There are no trees. Absolutely none. There are no sunsets. There are no lakes. There are no mountains. All we have are images of the wild others that they lived with. Most of them, animals that they probably did pursue to hunt, and some of the ones that obviously pursued them and hunted them, like the great bears and so on and so forth. The animals are meticulously, meticulously painted. The art is so exquisite that when Picasso was invited to view it uh, early in the 20th century, uh, he went to um, both uh, Lascaux in France and Altimera in Spain. He saw both of those collections. And when he left those viewings, he said that we have invented nothing. Art has invented nothing since these men painted. And they stopped painting around 10,000 years ago. And he said that after Altimera, all art is decadence. So this art is, it is unbelievable. And of course... What country is most of this in Spain? Most of it is in Spain. Uh -huh. uh, Spain has probably the most sites. Um, but there are a lot of sites in France as well. And there are a few sites in a few other places. But those two countries really have the mother load of this. Yeah. And if you or any of your listeners ever take it upon yourself to really try and understand where all of this comes from, you can have no better opportunity than to go and be absolutely astounded, amazed, humbled. Uh, it is a religious kind of experience, even for the irreligious. Wow. Okay. Well, something I'm going to have to put on the bucket list is to go to these caves, France and Spain, predominantly is where they are located. Uh, but let's take a break uh, right here and then come back and uh, we'll figure out where exactly Shane is going with this as far as how it relates to modern society and the modern hunter. And that segment, by the way, was brought to you by Lone Star Ag Credit. You know, land is the one thing they ain't making any more of, guys. Everybody wants it. So here's what you do if you're looking to finance your own little piece of paradise. You give Lone Star Ag Credit a call. They've been doing this for over 100 years, and they are happy to help you out. You can find them at LoneStarAdCredit.com. We'll be right back with more from Shane Mahoney right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Hold on tight as we slip in to this reverie. Slow down, slow down. 
you have a hog problem at your ranch or deer lease, we have the solution. The System Hog Trap comes in two sizes, 17-foot and 30-foot diameter traps. After you trap the hogs, take the top section off the trap and use it for another feeder site to keep the hogs away from the feeder. The System is both a trap and a deer food plot fence. That way you don't waste your money on just a hog trap. Call 940-391-3669 or visit www.goinfencing.com. That's goinfencing.com. Cable Smith here for Deerview Windows. As a whitetail hunter, nothing is more frustrating than poor visibility in a deer blind. It can flat ruin a hunt. At Deerview Window Company, they manufacture windows solely for the use in deer stand and deer blinds. All of their windows and doors can be custom made to fit your specific openings. Or you can select from standard sizes, from hinged windows to sliding windows and everything in between. Visit DeerviewWindows.com to determine which style window is best for your deer blind. Plus, you'll get a free quote. Deerview Windows, where visibility matters. Hey, it's Cable for DontTradeItIn.com. If you've got an old four-wheel drive vehicle that you don't need anymore, or you want to upgrade your daily driver or hunting rig to a newer one, DontTradeItIn.com wants your vehicle running or not. Their purchase process is quick, easy, and painless. Answer a few questions and get a cash offer in no time. They'll beat CarMax and dealership buy bids, guaranteed. Head over to DontTradeItIn.com or call or text Justin at 469-300-9669. That's 469-300-9669. It wasn't my daddy's way He was down in the mines all day I know he wanted more than mouths to feed and bills to pay Maybe the Cumberland Gap just swallows you up Maybe the Cumberland Gap just swallows The music of Jason Isbell bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoors Show Powered by Dallas Safari Club I'm your host, Cable Smith. Uh, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Players as well, our longtime presenting sponsors. We are rocking and rolling, visiting with our good friend Shane Mahoney here today, uh, discussing social trends in hunting uh, and really taking a historical look back at what makes you and I tick. Why do you hunt? Why do I hunt? Shane is obviously a very well-respected conservationist, uh, author, TV show host. Uh, you know, the list goes on and on. But despite all of that, I mean, for me personally, for my money's worth, uh, Shane's just an incredible speaker. And so we're going to jump back into our interview that we taped at the recent Dallas Safari Club convention here momentarily. But first, this segment brought to you by my good friends Josh and Becky Gunther over at Rustic Reminders Taxidermy. You know, they're family-owned and operated, and they've been taking care of me and all of my trophy mounts for seven years. I can't believe it's been that long now. But whether it's a black bear, white-tailed, trout, axis deer, turkey, uh, ducks, you name it. They do amazing work. They answer the phone when I call, and they offer fast turnaround time. Check them out for yourself by visiting GR8Mounts. That's GR8Mounts.com. All right, well, let's pick it back up here with Shane. Um, he talked about these these paintings in these caves that can be found in Spain and France. And these paintings are over 30,000 years old. And Shane, you even referred to it as a, a religious experience for the irreligious. And Shane, we're going to get to your point here uh, as to why you've, you've brought these paintings into the conversation today. But one thing I found humorous that you mentioned off the air was the lack of detail that these uh, artists would put into depicting humans. When it comes to human beings, all they do with human beings ever is create stick men. 
The animals are painted in their full color, with their eyes moving and their running, and whole herds of them on ceilings that are turning and moving as a herd of, of bison would do. It's absolutely unbelievable to see what they did. You come to human beings, and what you get, you get little stick men. That's all you get. And then you get handprints. They, they, they sometimes dab their hands in ink and made handprints, which obviously had symbolic importance. My point is, for this idea of empathy, that fascination, that love, that admiration, all of those things that would that can only explain why human beings would have done this. Because if you didn't love, respect, admire, you did not go down into those places and suddenly create these these living menageries of, of, of painted wildlife. You know, if you didn't care, you wouldn't do it, clearly. Sure. So we were, at that time, of course, the best hunters we had ever been. With minimum technology, we were killing the biggest and the baddest obviously without firearms, without bow and arrow even at that time, what you had to kill those animals with essentially was a handheld spear, mostly. Mm -hmm. So you had to be pretty damn good to kill these animals well, at all. They were a lot better hunters than we are today. To totally. <laughs> no and, question. And so at the zenith of their hunting prowess, the top of our hunting game, we at the same time were down painting these adoring images of the animals that we hunted. Mm. So this empathy for wildlife, this love for them, this fascination for them, is not created by modern society. It is not created by Disney. It is not created by social media. It is not created by the Humane Society of the United States. It is not created by any of the boogeymen that some, many, I would say, in the hunting community try to trot out. Right. It was, it's in us. Yeah. It is in us. It is as natural as our desire to procure food for ourselves, part of which is involves hunting. Sure. And so... People is, ask me sometimes, you know, people that... Maybe they, they aren't a hunter, but they're yeah. not against it. Yeah. Why do you hunt? Yeah. I don't know. I don't know any other way. Yeah. I, I, why do I wake up every day? Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> so I think what is happening with this separation now, with this separation... The part of us that at one time had to hunt, you know, we had to do to survive, as many people in the world still do, um, that part of us is waning in large sections of society. There's only 4.5% of us who are involved in this activity in the United States of America, which is the biggest and most uh, vibrant hunting culture in the world. Um, there's only 4.5% of us who are actually doing it. Um, so that part of us is waning. But what is not waning? is this other side of us, that love side, mm -hmm. that empathy side. So you can imagine it like two piles, you know, and one of them we have tread upon a spring. We've tread upon one spring and reduced it. And that spring was this necessity of being out there hunting and killing and so on because we can go to the restaurant and we can go to the supermarket and we go that. So that is being depressed by the lack of need and being replaced by agriculture and so on. But this other spring, this other spring is fully sprung still. And as a matter of fact, it is growing mm -hmm. because it is now the one of the two main belief systems and interactions and impressions we have of wild animals. That is the one that in most cases is the only one that people have left to explore. Mm -hmm. They could hunt, of course, but many people choose not to. 
And so this rising empathy is global. Even young Chinese, I can tell you, are developing completely different attitudes towards animal and animal death and, and killing animals for food. It is not just a phenomenon that's taking place in Western democracies where, you know, people have got too much and, you know, they have too much time on their hands or right, whatever and right. elites are arising. This is happening globally. And I encourage your listeners to just develop a, a little Leonardo-like uh, uh, behavior. Leonardo was uh, amazing because of his capacity to see detail when he went into a place. Uh, and he had trained himself to be very much like this. He was always taking in, you know, everything that was around him. And, of course, this is reflected in the magnificence of his art and also his creations, his engineering creations. Um, just take a little bit of that and begin to record for a period of a week all of the animal imagery you see in your everyday life when you go to a grocery store and look at the labels, when you go into a, uh, uh, a furniture store and you look at what, how things are shaped and things that are on the wall and what maybe the shape of mirrors might be or the, the quilts that are on the bed and what the imagery is there or the number of glass uh, vases and so on and so forth that, that are made in the shape of animals or have animals on them or you know, animal engravings on different things, on boxes and on desks and so on and so forth. Just look at the incredible amount of animal imagery that is around us every single day. And then ask yourself, why do people in business lean so far towards constantly, unchangingly, bringing out variety of product and that so often carries images of animals upon it. You will be astounded when you start to keep a list of how much there is. And then start to look at what we're doing in the field of advertising and how many animals are, in fact, playing the role of salesmen for, whether it's a little gecko selling insurance or a little duck selling fertilizer or... A tiger selling cornflakes. A or tiger or selling... Frosted flakes. Yeah, frosted right. flakes. Uh... Or uh, now we have uh, owls uh, doing great advertisements for sleep aids. Mm -hmm. And uh, it, it goes on sure. and on and on. And people love them. Mm -hmm. Hunters love them. I love them. Sure. I, I, I think that gecko, I think he's the best <laughs> thing on television. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, you know, th this, this is all a reflection. And it has nothing to do with Walt Disney. And it has nothing to do. You see, it, it's within us. And so... You you see this coming out in society now to a greater extent than ever before, and we might as well accept the fact that this is going to continue. There is no way to turn off in the human animal the love and fascination and curiosity we have for the wild others. Like your birds that come to your feeder, or if somebody sees a snake slithering across a road, or if somebody sees a hawk perched in a tree, or if somebody sees a bear rumbling across a field, um, we cannot be changed that way. And we stop. We stop what we're doing, and we watch. Yeah, we do. Absolutely. Yeah. It's inherent. It's just like, yeah. 
oh, eyes yeah. get wide. It's like, how cool is that? Absolutely. <laughs> and we get up early in the morning. You know, we do we do crazy things to yeah. try to have those experiences. Uh-huh. Uh, we make ourselves uncomfortable to have those experiences. Some of us do that, of course, in our hunting as well. But lots of us who hunt do that when there's no... Open season. Yeah, yeah. We, we're just out there to yeah. do that kind of thing. So we have to realize that that is happening. And the question for the hunting world is not whether we are going to be engaged by that change, but how are we going to engage with that change? Hmm. And the efforts that are made by so many organizations and so many people in positions of influence in so many institutions and organizations who are constantly trying to get rid of that in some way, you know, to, 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 to fist fight their way through that kind of social change and spend enormous amounts of money uh, on trying to do that are wasting their time. There is no way to shut this off. What there is a way to do, I believe, is for us to demonstrate that we too are part of that. Not to say to somebody who thinks that, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, let's take an example. Uh, I was driving not terribly long ago when I was in Missouri, and uh, I passed by a beautifully manicured field uh, that stood out from all the other landscape around it, and I asked the gentleman who was driving me, I said, what's that? He said, that's a a cemetery. I said, oh, and then he said, for pets. Hmm. Now, some people would say, that's the most ridiculous thing I ever heard, you know, that somebody actually wants to take Fido or or whoever, and, and after the animal dies, they want to, you know, inter the animal or their ashes somewhere or something of this nature. But I don't. I don't do that. Sure. But I don't find that very strange at all because I can assure, as I've told many people, I have lost both family members um, in my life and I have also lost animals that I have had in my life, some of them for long periods of time. And I can say without any hesitancy whatsoever that I think about and miss those animals and those people who were loved ones and in my family, I miss them in the same way Mm. and almost to the same extent. Mm. And I don't care what anybody else says, I believe there are a lot of other people who, if they were honest, would say exactly the same thing. uh, I've lost friends and family, obviously. Everybody has. Yeah. I had a lab for 14 years. He died last summer. Yeah. And I cried more. Yep. When he died, yep. then, I mean, like a yep. baby, a grown man. Yep. I held him when he died, yep. and I just, oh, it was, one, it was one of the worst things I've ever gone through. Yeah, I, I totally understand it, because when I lost my uh, lab, uh, Riley, uh, which is a long time ago now, uh, that would have been uh, probably 15, 16 years ago, uh, I said then that I would never have another dog. Hmm. And I never have, even though I absolutely adore dogs. Right. Maybe that will change yet. Who knows? So, you know, this idea that you can be deeply emotionally attached, that you can love animals, 
uh, and to believe that they can speak to you and that they have real intelligence, that they really have intelligence, and they, they have empathy and all that, which a lot of people in the hunting press, for example, want to dismiss, right? They want to say, we're turning them into human beings. You know, you hear this all the oh, time. Sure. You hear it out there on that floor uh, now, I saw right? a lady feeding... The, the dog came into the restaurant in a yeah. stroller, yeah, and she was dipping her French fries in ketchup and giving it to, you it to Yeah, <laughs> like, that's yeah. a little too much for me personally. Yeah. So, but my point is that the uh, there is no way. There's always going to be a little bit of an extreme behavior, mm-hmm. but there is no purpose and there is no truth in trying to say that these animals do not have intelligence that they do not feel, as I've told many hunting audiences, the bullet and the arrow exactly the same as we do. Uh, There is no point trying to pretend that those animals cannot have their own emotions. The love and loyalty that animals can show towards human beings is not some kind of plastic uh, representation of our kinds of affections. It's real, it is deep, it is transferred, and transferred often with intelligence. I have seen animals, and I spent my life before this part of it with animals all the time, in wilderness, months and months and months at a time, way more than 99.99% of the people listening to this show have done. And I can tell you I saw in wild animals, as I have seen in domestic animals like our dogs and cats and horses and so on and so forth, I have seen very clear examples of real thoughtful intelligence, really strong evidence of affection and love that is not just can be dismissed by simply... um, Nature. Yeah, you know, it's instinct instinct or something of this nature. Okay, Shane, I want to get to where you're going with this uh, as far as what the hunting community can do to make non-hunters, even anti-hunters, aware of our compassion for wildlife. I think that's where you're headed, but uh, we do need to take a quick break, so can you stick around for another segment? Absolutely. Awesome, and that segment brought to you by the brand new Pulsar Trail LRF. That's right, it's a Thermal optic with a laser rangefinder. No more guessing how far away those hogs, coyotes, bobcats, etc. are. You just tag them with that laser rangefinder and you're dialed in. You can find it at PulsarNV.com and save 20% off of your entire order. Uh, that's right, thermals or night vision optics if you use my promo code Lone Star. That's Lone Star at PulsarNV.com. We'll be right back with more from our good friend Shane Mahoney right here on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. I got a handle on my bottle. Hey y'all, Cable here for my good friends over at Outlaw Outfitters. This veteran-owned and operated outfit will put you on the ducks, to say the least. I've been hunting with them for, gosh, four or five years now. They also do uh, deer, hog, and turkey as well. They have over 15,000 acres they hunt in Collin, Grayson, and Fannin counties. Whether you want to do a turnkey, you know, one morning waterfowl hunt, or a complete weekend package with authentic Cajun cooking and lodging, it's all right there within an hour of the Metroplex, and you can find them at HuntOutlaw.com. 
In the market for a compact track loader, then check out the Bobcat Advantage, where Bobcat track loaders squared off against other brands in a variety of tests and challenges. Whether you're looking for performance advantages, uptime protection, or quality design, Bobcat compact track loaders are the best-built machines in the industry. But don't take our word for it. Watch the videos at BobcatAdvantage.com or see Bobcat machines in person at Bobcat of Dallas and Louisville, Fort Worth, Cedar Hill, Longview, and now McKinney. Visit BobcatofDallas.com or call 469-586-0000. Hey, y'all. Chris Letzinger, online sales manager at Cinnamon Creek Ranch here, reminding you we're not your typical archery club. We're a -a one-of-a-kind archery facility with indoor and outdoor ranges, full pro shop, and six different 3D courses. Cinnamon Creek was designed by hunters for hunters. Located in Roanoke, Texas, we have over 200 3D targets to hone your archery skills. Call 817-439-8998 or visit us at cinnamoncreekranch.com to visit our new online store. That's cinnamoncreekranch.com. This is Stephen Ranella. Thanks for listening to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. Cable Smith, welcoming everybody back to the Lone Star Outdoor Show. That's my jam right there. Babe Fleck, Big Country, a little funny uh, backstory. Not that you don't care, but I'll, I'll tell you anyway. Uh, my first on-air job ever in radio was at the campus radio station at the University of North Texas Jazz Station. Okay? So I was a jazz DJ for uh, four hours a couple times every week. And we had a list of songs that we had to play. And then we had a library, a catalog of, of compact discs. We could play anything we wanted to from. And so I, I found that Bela Fleck CD. And I played that song, Big Country, every shift because it had a banjo in it. And, you know, I'm not a big jazz fan. There's nothing wrong with it. But, you know, real country music is where my heart is. And, and that was the closest thing I could find. So I played that song every shift until one day... The program director stormed in there and said, Damn it, Cable, if you play that song again, I'm going to throw the CD away. So uh, I gave it a week before I played it again. And then I uh, just kind of snuck it in here and there after that. But uh, that one uh, that one goes back about 15 years or so for me. Anyway, uh, thank you guys and gals for being here as we are visiting with the great Shane Mahoney this morning. We're about to pick up uh, where we left off in that discussion. But first, this segment brought to you by Two Texas Traditions. Lone Star Beer, the national beer of Texas, and Rudy's True Texas-style barbecue. All right. Well, without further delay, let's get back into it here with Shane Mahoney as we are discussing social trends in hunting and what we can do to show the other side that we are not these bloodthirsty savages that the media makes us out to be. And so, Shane, we've discussed a lot of stuff today, all focused on getting to this one relevation that... Hunters are the original lovers of wildlife, dating back to the cave paintings in France and Spain of 30,000-some years ago. We had a circumstance uh, the other day, uh, made, uh, made the rounds uh, around the world media, of a, a dog. Its master died. And uh, its master died, and the dog, and they lived quite some distance uh, from where the uh, the cemetery was, and eventually the the man was was buried in in the cemetery. Um, 
shortly after his death, a few days passed, and the dog constantly was obviously looking for this man, couldn't find him. He would be gone for a day, be gone for two or three days, be gone for three or four days. And then finally he was gone and he didn't come back anymore. Well, that dog found the grave hmm. of its master. And it stayed at that gravesite for 12 years every day. The keepers at the grave, the people who looked after the graveyard, saw him there. He was an Alsatian. He was a German shepherd. Uh, and thought first he was just a stray. And then realized that the dog would not leave the gravesite. And they fed him all those years. Wow. And that's where that animal will stay. Now. Some people will probably come up with some cockeyed uh, reason to say what that dog did what it did. And I can tell you why the dog did what it did from Shane Mahoney's opinion. The dog loved the man mm. and was loyal to that man. Absolutely. And so we need in the hunting world to get over this idea that if we allow that kind of emotional caring for animals to come out, that somehow this is going to damage either our image personally or the image of hunting or make our arguments about hunting uh, less believable or whatever. I think exactly the opposite is true. Uh, People say a dog can't tell time. I've heard it forever. Yeah. When I go to Africa for 10 days, yeah. come back, or I go to my dealies for one day, yeah. it's not the same reception I get when I come home no. As if I just went to the grocery store for an hour. Oh. I mean, she knows. She knows. Yeah. I still have one chocolate lab. Yeah, yeah. And she, if, if I've been gone for an extended period of time, the yeah. love she gives me is exponentially more than if I just, oh, hey, yeah. I'm back for just back, a cup of coffee. Just, yeah, yeah. It's, to, it's totally true. Yeah. These, these observations. She's probably sitting there waiting. She's probably walking around the house looking for me, yeah, waiting yeah. for me. Yeah. Every minute. That's her whole purpose in life. Yeah, exactly. And it's a... Uh, and you know it's 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 real affection, and I've seen them do things even in circumstances you know where they have separated people, saving children, doing all kinds of things. There's all kinds of uh, examples of where these animals do things, and so I think what this social trend means is that if we do not accept it's real, and if we do not figure out a way to trim our sails to fit to some extent within it then it is going to crash over us with a tidal wave because it is growing, 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 and the number of us is going down, down, down. Mm. So why don't the remnant of us, the 4.5% of us, get over ourselves and actually start talking about these kinds of ideas? And why don't we start doing things that it, and explaining our experiences with animals we don't hunt? that we love, whether it's our domestic animals or whether those wild birds coming to your feeder or whether it's butterflies or whether you just like to go see, uh, like to see fish schooling at the, you know, near a falls on a salmon stream or whatever the circumstance is. And why don't our hunting organizations take some of their money every single year and give it to organizations and invest it in projects and programs that have nothing to do with hunting but have something to do with just other kinds of wildlife? Why don't we support here uh, sea turtle research and, you know, or sharks or, or uh, uh, um, you know, things to protect the great remaining great apes that there are in the world. Why don't hunting organizations get off their ass and start to do something that will make that big part of the people in the middle say, you know, they're good people. Mm -hmm. They're not just putting their money into things that uh, they want to shoot. And this rising empathy, of course, within that bubble of empathy for wildlife, 
there are some people, of course, who are on one end, they can be animal rights believers, and there'll be other groups who want don't want animals killed at all, there'll be vegans, but there also will be people over on another end who don't care as much, and then there's a big pot of people in the middle who are just trying to figure out what they agree with, with regard to all of this. They may be fine for a man who is a deer hunter, uh, and not fine for a man who goes to hunt African lions. Right. They might be fine for the individual who fishes for Atlantic salmon, but they're not fine with somebody who uses hounds to chase mountain lions. I mean, in other words, they have views on very specific issues sure, with regard sure. to hunting. And I just even hunters and even hunters. Hunters are, you know, I mean, of course. social media. You see it. It's like, oh, it's the whole. I don't kill something I won't eat. So why yep. would you shoot a coyote? Or, yep. You know. Yeah, that kind of mentality. Yeah, I mean, and and those are, all of those, you see, in my view, are totally valid opinions. Mm. That's what the people feel. They feel that they, they, they would never, uh, trophy hunting. Quotation sure. marks. That's a complicated term. We've de- dealt with that before. Yeah. But they, you know, many hunters for uh, over a half a century of surveys in this country have shown that once you throw that word into the mix, a lot of people say, no, I, I wouldn't do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, they may still go out and look for the biggest buck they can find sure. but they're still saying i'm not you right. know but it, it, nevertheless it, it it happens and i think that uh, that's a very strong point you raise that the differences of in opinions are not just between us in quotation marks the hunters and them in quotation marks the others in sure. public we have enormous differences of opinion within our own community mm-hmm. and so it should be we come from very different backgrounds, very different experiences. My experiences hunting in Newfoundland, where I've done most hunting, because that's where I was from, that's where I live, is vastly different from some of the hunting that's done in other parts of the world and other parts of North America. I mean, it's just the way it is. Um, you know, so in Newfoundland, for example, if I have an either-sex license, uh, in other words, I can take a bull or a cow of a of moose, let's say, um, and I'm not alone in this, um, you know, I will, my top prize is a dry cow. In other words, a cow unaccompanied by a calf, um, because I know that she's going to be fat and round and she's going to be very good to eat. That doesn't mean that if I'm pursuing that and I see a magnificent bull, <laughs> that I'm not all of a sudden quickly change maybe right. and shoot the bull. But the point is that we do have this target of, of these, you know, these, these meat uh, animals very deeply ingrained in our culture because it really was for necessity up until a very short period of time. Yeah. Uh, and we still rely very heavily on gay meat. So you go to some other places where people have lived differently and they have different attitudes. Uh, they look at things, uh, you know, not quite the same. Uh, we're bound to have these differences of opinion. Our problem, I think, though, is we will either learn now in the next 10 to 15 years to align those parts of our views and our attitudes with those parts of our attitudes and beliefs that are in agreement with wider society. We will align them and we will work ourselves into those discussions and into those opportunities. We will write about different things. We will photograph different things. We will 
share the food in a more aggressive way or, or even a more more people and we will start to show that hunters care about the entire natural system out there or we will be shut down I really fundamentally believe that that is what will happen over time mm -hmm. and the only way for us to safeguard this is really to not be terrified of these social trends not blame it on boogeymen like social media and I don't know somebody from PETA or whatever um, what we need to realize is society is changing and hunters need to bring out the very best in themselves parts of themselves in fact that I would argue that a lot of hunters just simply haven't exposed mm. and I think we would be find much more acceptance if in fact we did that no audience I speak to disbelieves me when I tell them I love animals. And right. I have spoken to anti-hunting audiences. I have spoken to a huge variety of audiences around the world. They may not agree with my ideas or they may disagree with something else I say. But I have never had the problem of somebody disbelieving that Shane Mahoney loves animals. And anybody who's ever known me knows that about me. And anyone you talk to in Newfoundland who is well known there will tell you exactly the same kind of thing. So I believe that that, in fact, gives me opportunities to speak to very different groups of people about hunting than many other hunters have. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Well, and, and you know, if you look pull up my Instagram feed, it's littered with trophy pictures. Mm -hmm. I also like to mix in pictures of live animals. Sure. But this conversation has inspired me to make that even more of a yeah. priority. Yeah. Um, you know, I, well, I, you'll get more followers. Yeah. I mean, you put, I mean, pictures of animals, man. Yeah. I'm telling you. Yeah. You just look at it. You know, somebody puts out a little cat video. I mean, you might be talking. <laughs> you might. You might be talking, putting out one that's really urgent, you know, end of the world in 10 minutes, so get ready. And it's true. Yeah. But if somebody puts out a video of a cat playing with a ball of string or something, no one's going to look at yours. Right, right. <laughs> and, well, I did actually share a video of a cat recently, and it was this guy. He was petting this squirrel. It was a wild squirrel. He was holding it, and he sets it back up on the tree. Someone else is videoing here comes the house cat and grabs the squirrel. <laughs> really? <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh, there was a lot of comments on that one. Yeah. Um, let me ask you this as we as we wrap up. You've yeah. been very gracious with your time. Go back to those those paintings in those caves. Um, what is compare that to modern humans? What is our version of that today? Uh, in you know, what do we do that's that's similar? That's similar. Well, this is where I was going in part with this idea of animal imagery. We seem to be driven to create this stuff. So on the floor here at Dallas Safari Club's convention, where we are, just look at the amount of art that's that's there. Mm -hmm. And what you'll also notice is the art is largely, almost exclusively, there's a few exceptions, is almost exclusively the living animal. Mm -hmm. There are very few hunting scenes. There's, sure. so, there's some, but right. it, they may be 5% of all the art that's out there. And also you'll notice that there's animals go all the way from chickens, from barnyard chickens, to, to elephants. I mean, it, we're not just even just have art out there of the hunted species. So we are still uh, adorning uh, places where we live with imagery of animals. We have broadened that to include landscapes and so on and so forth now, and that's a distinct change. But still, the imagery and the art and the sculptures being created 
with images of animals is just it's unending and it's all over the world it is everywhere in the world um, and so we seem to it seems not to be enough even for the experienced amongst us it seems not to be enough to know that they are out there and we who are knowledgeable enough can go find them it seems we want to bring them into our caves still mm -hmm. yeah? Yeah. and have them on our walls still and often of course we put over in those circumstances small lights or put them in circumstances where particularly at times those paintings become even more evocative and emotive uh, because you see them in this kind of dull light which is really quite representative of what we were doing 20 and 30 thousand years ago fascinating stuff. it is yeah. well Shane thank you so much for your time today you're very welcome it was uh, really enjoyable conservation visions what's the uh, is it just conservationvisions.com dot com or they can read lots of stuff and see lots of stuff and just to let you know that uh, in the next six months or so as this wild harvest initiative we can talk about it at some other time uh, program that I have, you're going to see some really uh, new websites and uh, explosive outreach plans. We've got some big companies that are coming in that are really going to be launching a lot of this. So we'll see a lot more of that as well. I look forward to it. Well, thank Absolutely. you again, Shane. Thank you very treat. much. Yeah. Absolutely. Take care. The voice of Shane Mahoney, I tell you what, uh, coming from someone who speaks for a living to you guys and gals every week, uh, that voice blows me away. If I could be half as articulate as Shane in my delivery, I think I'd have it made. Uh, anyway, that segment of the show proudly brought to you by First Light. Yep, if you haven't heard, we've made a change. I will be wearing First Light gear only going forward in all of our outdoor excursions. First Light is made for the hardcore hunter. They live by the slogan, go farther, stay longer. And I'm absolutely thrilled to be a part of the First Light team. I hope you guys and gals will check out uh, their outdoor apparel going forward. Well, let's um, let's do this. Let's take a quick break, come back, and head down to the coast. We're going to chase trout and redfish next with Captain Nick Dykes on the Lone Star Outdoor Show. They say America never cries. Like no one's lonely in America. Like no one's lonely in America. A rock steady point, a covey rises, over-unders ring out. Cable here for White Rock Upland Birds, an outfit Bell and I have hunted with many times. Whether you bring your bird dogs or use their polished pointers, hunting quail and pheasant on the White Rock Trophy Ranch is an experience to remember. Located 45 minutes from TFW in Italy, Texas, White Rock will waive the $150 guide fee if you mention the Lone Star Outdoors show. Plus, save $25 off any package if you bring your own dogs. So grab your buddies and shotguns and call 972-880-9068 today. Hey, North Texas sports fans. This is Brian Spagnola, General Manager of Texas Motor Cars in Addison. My family's been in the car business for over 50 years, and I want to show you the difference in buying from a family-owned and operated business. TexasMotorCars.com is an awesome website that lets you do virtually all of your shopping online. We have a professional photographer that takes amazing photos, and we give you all the information that you'll need up front. 
You can even find out how much we will give you for your trade-in before you ever come in. I take pride in the fact you can come in, choose a car, and be out in less than an hour. We have financing rates starting at 1.79% on pre-owned vehicles and can help almost anybody. Please do yourself a favor. If you're in the market for a pre-owned vehicle of any kind, give us a shot. Let me show you how easy buying a vehicle should be. Visit TexasMotorCars.com or come visit our 20,000-square-foot indoor showroom in Addison. Again, visit TexasMotorCars.com or call us at 1-888-9-TX-MOTORS. Honey, tell me how your love runs true And how I can always count on you Be there when the bullets fly I'd run across the river just to hold you Feathered Indians, little Tyler Childers bringing us back on the Lone Star Outdoor Show powered by Dallas Safari Club. Cable Smith here with you today. Thanks to Lone Star Beer and Hoff Power Polaris as well. And thanks to you for being here as we're about to talk a little saltwater fishing with guide Nick Dykes. But before we do that, this segment of the presentation is proudly brought to you by IOTA Outdoors and the all-new IOTA Crutch Rifle Stock. They've got the Kremlin, they've got the Crux, and now they've got its cousin, the Crutch. And you can find the trio of custom rifle stocks right there at iotaoutdoors.com. All right, uh, let's talk a little fishing. And joining us now live from Galveston Bay, it's my pleasure to welcome Captain Nick Dykes to the show. Uh, thanks, Cable. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. And since uh, you're going to be coming on the show from time to time, I figured, hey, first of all, let's get to know you. We're going to talk some fishing today, obviously. But first, uh, tell us you know, tell us how old you are and where you're from and what you do for a living. Oh, I'm 36 years old, and I'm from Galveston area. Uh, I grew up down here. Um, I'm a full-time fishing guide on Galveston Bay. I fish West Bay, East Bay, Trinity Bay, uh, pretty much the whole Galveston Bay complex. Uh-huh. And and I've been fishing the water since, you know, I was six years old. Uh, grew up weight fishing, you know. Uh, we didn't have boats when we were kids, you know. And so our only option was just to get out and wait. So that's how I kind of cut my teeth on the weight fishing. And when I started getting older, we started, you know, getting on John boats and getting the smaller boats and stuff. And we started exploring more, you know, more areas, more water. And uh, pretty much that's how I learned most of the bay system, just by getting out and feeling what's underneath me. Sure, sure. And um, as far as wade fishing, that's what I do want to. I do want to key in on that today because it's a little different. Most guides, um, I guess, most guides would probably let you wade fish if you if you ask them. Say, hey, I want to wade fish. Okay, uh, but that's generally not their their number one focus. Uh, they're typically going to have you sit in the boat, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but I think you miss out on a little bit of that connection with nature and the outdoors, um, by not getting into the water, you know, being right there in it, uh, takes it to a, a, another level. And for me personally, you know, I told you off the air, uh, one of my best friends from college, um, his dad is, is from Portland. And so for about 15 years, we've gone down to the, uh, Corpus or Port Aranza, you know, Port Aranza's area. And, and that's what they do is they wade fish. So it's something that I've always enjoyed immensely, um, more so than, than sitting in a boat. Uh, Talk about when you're wade fishing. Um, what's different about that for you uh, as opposed to, you know, sitting in a boat? Why is it more appealing? Well, it's kind of like what you said. You know, you know it's, it's getting down with their elements. It's kind of like a deer hunter 
with uh, hunting with archery equipment. You know, it's it, it adds more skill level. You know, I wouldn't say so much more skill level, but it adds another uh, perception on the hunt. You know, mm-hmm. things are just a little bit more trickier. Um, and to be honest with you, I mean, that's the best way to learn a bay floor. I mean, to get out and to touch it. Uh, I mean, your electronics, they're wonderful. They've come a long way with electronics. But to really know in your shallow waters, you know, uh, Galveston Bay, like especially West Bay, West Galveston Bay is relatively, relatively shallow. I mean, you know, depth, you know, deep depth in West Bay will be six foot, maybe seven foot in time. But most of it's anywhere from three to four feet. And uh, to really know, like, it's how the reef that you're fishing or how the grass line or the potholes are set up, I mean, it, you really have to get out there because – there, we do have clear water days here in Galveston, but the majority of the time, I mean, it's it's dirtier water, especially like from compared Galveston to like you know Corpus area or mm-hmm. even down south of Laguna Madre. You know, you can really see and those are a lot shallower bays also, but I mean, you can really see the water clarity difference there. And uh, I mean, it just it just gives you a better insight on what, what you're fishing and how they how those fish are set up to say you're fishing a grass line. Well, um, in a boat, yes, you know you're on grass because you're picking up grass. With your with your lure, or you might be you know seeing on your depth finder, but do you know exactly is there a pothole going to be in front of you? You know how does that pothole shape? You know if you have like a northeast wind, will those fish be a certain way on that pothole? That pothole, and I mean you can tell because you you walked over it. You know exactly what's on the bottom of there, mm-hmm. and uh, you know the different winds with the different directions the fish might be looking. You know to ambush the bait. It just it gives you a better a better vantage point, I think than actually fishing in the boat. Sure, sure. Well, you you offer either way, whatever your clients want to do, but your right. preference is to say, hey, let's uh, let's get out of the boat and, and wait here. Uh, now, typically, are you throwing live bait, artificial, or uh, do you do a mix of both? I do a mix of both. I, I'll, I'll leave it up to my clients. Um, you know, personally, if it's just me, me and my family going out or me and my friends, we'll mostly just stick with artificial. Uh, it's just it's cheaper. Yeah. You know, it's you can just go out and go. You don't have to worry about getting croaker or getting shrimp and worry about the bait being alive and worry about your oxygen being filled up and all that. You can just get out and go. And um, But with my clients, you know, I'll give them the opportunity. If they want to fish croaker, I'll take them on a croaker trip. If they want to fish topwaters all day, we'll sling topwaters all day. You know, it's, it's really up to them. Uh-huh. Okay, so right now, you know, we are approaching February, fast approaching February. What artificials are you having the most success with so talk about the bait and then talk about the technique whether it's a fast or a slow presentation here in the uh the cold weather uh months sure sure um here up until recently i would say this past cold cold snap i have been steadily on a corky bite uh the corky uh, fat boys and the soft dimes is what we've been using um and, you know, with those, uh, there's a million different ways to fish those, and everybody's got their own little niche on how to fish them. Some work them fast, some work them slow. Uh, but up until the cold snap, we were working the, the fat boys really slow. They are real slow pace. It's a, a steady reel, and just maybe raise your rod tip up to, like, 12 o'clock position. Not a lot of popping, you know, like when you start popping on the, the top water. Mm-hmm. Um, Is that just because the fish are lethargic? or? I mean, yeah, we, oh, yeah. Yeah. They... They definitely, they definitely were definitely colder. Yeah. Uh, now you know we had days where the, the sun heated up the the mudflats and they actually kind of you know felt real like hard thump instead of just loading up the rod. You could actually feel like a summertime thump like you would on a croaker or maybe just when they slam a, a soft plastic in the early summer, late summer. But 
most of most of the fish we've been catching, we've been having a real cold winter this year. It's just been real sluggish, you know. And, uh, just a slight kick, or maybe your rod will just slowed up. And then um, as the, the cold capacity we just had, uh, you know, our, our water temperatures got down to you know the 40s. Right. And Heck, you guys had the mandatory fishing closures there. Right. Yeah, we had uh, two two spots that were kind of known spots for uh, holding wintertime fish. And Texas Park and Wildlife said, we're going to shut these down for a couple of days and let these fish recuperate. That way, you know, if you do catch them, you can actually release them if you want to release them, and they'll actually have an opportunity to make it. Yeah, and I wonder so, about yeah. that, uh, because are there enough guys actually fishing when it's 20 degrees outside to <laughs> to make a, a significant difference? I, I I have a hard time believing that enough people are willing to brave those extreme cold temperatures uh, for it to even matter one way or the other. You know, I think uh, the people were, there might be people fishing, but the odds of catching, that's, you know, there's a there, there's a huge amount of people in Texas that goes fishing, you know. But uh, if you really think about it, you know, there's a percentage of people who actually catch, you yeah. know. And I, we went out the uh, the day after the mandatory uh, uh, fishing closures. And I, I tell you, we caught redfish, and when we did, they were they were sluggish. Like, I mean, I didn't even know if they, these big redfish were going to make it, you know, as you were releasing them back in the water. Hmm. And, you, and, you know, a redfish, I mean, you, you could put it in a five-gallon bucket, and it'd stay alive forever, you know. Yeah. And uh, these fish were just, it just has a hard time, you know, just making it back down to the deeper water. But um, I think it's a good thing for those who may have uh, caught fish in that period. But... It definitely wasn't, you know, shooting fish in a barrel. I can tell you that's for dang sure. Yeah. And so you, you went out. I mean, how, did you see a lot of other people still fishing? No. Actually, I was uh, the, the bait shop that I put in that was closed, and I was the only truck and trailer there. <laughs> okay. So that's, <laughs> right. that's kind of what yeah. I thought. I mean, only the... Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a lot of people at all. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, you know, whatever. They're they're doing what they believe is right, and the, sure. they they know better than I do, so... Right. Um, they're just trying to protect the resource, but uh, like I said, there's not a lot of guys fishing when it's that cold because it's unpleasant. You know, it's like yeah, it's like duck hunters. We're we're sick in the head too, and and anyone that's fishing in that temperature is is also a little twisted. So uh, <laughs> <laughs> that is right. Yeah. Uh, tell us the brand of that bait uh, one more time for anyone that missed it. Uh, the cor- the Corky Fat Boy, and uh, when they use the soft the soft on by Corky also. Okay, and then uh, uh, slow. Slow retrieve, slow, slow retrieve, and you know, and like I said, if the sun, if the sun heats the water up, they might start feeding a little more aggressive. You might be able to work a little faster. Uh-huh. I mean, it just varies from day to day. Yeah. They'll, they'll tell you what they want for sure. And then, uh, as of this week, we've been using a lot of soft plastics, uh, a lot of down south. Um, we've been using quarter inch jig heads, and you know, at first we were jigging, you know, popping the working the bait, and we were catching a few fish, but I've noticed here lately, the past few trips, it's just been a slow roll. I mean, you cast, maybe count, three count, four count, and just slowly start reeling in like a spinner bait for a bass. Mm-hmm. And they just been loading, loading them up, and then, you know, you got fish on for sure. But, um, yeah, color? it's real funny. Uh, actually, we've been using the uh, LaRue. They make a it's LaRue Salt. I think it's LaRue Sassy. I think that's the name of it. And then uh, plum chartreuse and uh, true plum okay. is the number one colors that we've been using. Yeah. And, yeah. Okay. Awesome. Awesome. Well, um, like I said, we are certainly thrilled to have you as a part of the show. Uh, you'll be coming on every, basically every other month. We'll check in and get our uh, our coastal fishing report with you. And 
if folks want to uh, to find you, Nick, where can they do that? Uh, you can you can look up uh, look on Facebook at uh, Triple D Guide Service, and uh, you can find me there. Uh, we had a website, but we took it down. You know, we just weren't getting a lot of hits off the website. You can find me on Instagram, uh, uh, Fishing Booker. Uh, if y'all want to get on the uh, the web and look through uh, the various guides there, we're on Fishing Booker. Okay. And right on, right on. And uh, and like you said, you recommend uh, wade fishing. So if people are yeah. at all interested or find that appealing, uh, Nick's the guy to to, uh, to take you on a wade fishing trip there around the Galveston area, which I'll be honest, um, you know, I used to go to Galveston as a kid. My grandparents were from Houston, and so we'd vacation down there. And then we took about 25 years off. Uh, the last five years, I think, my, my family with now – um, you know, my parents and brothers and sisters and, and grandkids, the whole, everybody, we head down there and, uh, and my dad and brothers and I, uh, go fishing, obviously Galveston's a great fishery. It can't be, uh, it can't be, uh, under overstated how, how wonderful that fishery is. Tons of, uh, you know, oyster reefs that, that make for great, uh, underwater habitat. That's it. And you know, that's our, that's our, that's the number one resource down here for us. You know I mean? Without our oysters, our bay would just be... You know, it'd be useless. You yeah. know, um, well, we do have a lot of uh, sand grass flats. You know, but uh, majority of our fishing, they come off oysters. You know, yeah. and um, awesome. definitely, uh, definitely good for our basis. Well, Nick, we appreciate it, man. I look forward right, man, to uh, our next visit. Sure, thank you. All right, bud. Take care. You too. All right, Captain Nick Dykes, Triple D Guide Service, joining us from Galveston Bay, and uh, no kidding, those oyster reefs, man, they hold some. Big old trout, that is for sure. Uh, that segment of the show brought to you by Sendero Seed Company, Texas premier seed company, offering everything you need to keep a happy and healthy whitetail herd. So check them out at Sendero Seed Company for all your planting needs. I'm just looking at the clock here. Unfortunately, it is that time. We've got to go. Got to get out of here. I do want to thank both of our guests today, Captain Nick Dykes as well as Shane Mahoney. We've got a couple interesting things for you next week. Uh, first of all, Bell fell through the ice uh, while we were hunting um, up in Oklahoma last weekend. So that was a pretty scary situation that ended up with me stripping down to my long johns, grabbing an axe, and going in after her. Uh, so we're both okay, obviously. But certainly one of those deals that I don't ever want to have to relive. That is for sure. Uh, I'll tell you how it happened, if I would hunt her again in that situation, and also the guys I was hunting with. Um, as a group, we were very calm, very level-headed, and I think that made a big difference as well. So we'll get into that. And then also the monster Denton County buck that was poached back in October by a bow hunter. Uh, yeah, it would have been a state record. The official score has been released. Uh, the game wardens have finished their case against Travis Johnson, and we'll have game warden Stormy McQuiston of Denton County join us next week. And I will ask him everything. Um, he's not going to hide anything. He'll tell us exactly how Travis poached the deer and how he became alerted that there was possible foul play involved. Uh, I mean, heck, it's a potential state record deer. It would it would be the, the state record deer. 278 inches crushed the archery record and would be right there with the uh, Mark Rose buck as far as the biggest deer ever taken in Texas free range. 
Uh, so that's what we'll get into next week, among other things. Uh, thanks to all of our sponsors for making this show possible. Thanks to you, the listener, for being a part of the Lone Star Outdoors show. Until next time, I'm Cable Smith saying, y'all have a great week in the outdoors. We pull up on some old dirt road on the way home because we can't.